Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Just under a year ago, in January, it looked like the end might be near for Hampshire College. The Amherst School, which opened in 1970 offering a non-traditional approach to liberal arts education, was in dire financial straits, according to its president, Miriam Nelson. She said the school would be seeking a strategic partner, which really seemed like a polite euphemism for being swallowed up in a takeover by a larger entity. Hampshire then announced it would not admit an entering class for this fall, a move that sent shockwaves throughout the college community. Current students and faculty, as well as alumni, did not take the news well. They organized and fought back against the proposed merger, including with a 60-day student sit-in at the president's office. By April, Nelson and the chair and vice chair of the Hampshire Board of Trustees had resigned. College leaders vowed to reverse course on Nelson's edict and remain an independent college. Four months later, Ed Wingenbach arrived as the New Hampshire president charged with leading that effort. It is a tall order, and Ed Wingenbach is here with us on the podcast to tell us how he'll do it and how things are going so far. Welcome. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. So I, in the, in, the, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm going to start out by telling listeners that I am actually a graduate of Hampshire College, and, and I'm certainly rooting for the college to make it. But why... Why does this matter more broadly? Why should other people care if Hampshire College makes it? What does it mean to higher ed and, uh, and the broader, broader uh, world? Uh, one of the things I've said repeatedly uh, is that Hampshire College is, from my point of view, and I think from many people in higher education's point of view, the essential college uh, in American higher ed. Uh, Hampshire College was founded 50 years ago this fall specifically to be a source of innovation and experimentation in higher ed. And so if you look at many of the trends over the last 50 years that have tremendously benefited students across the country, uh, things like the idea of senior capstones where at the culmination of a student's studies they do in-depth work or projects in a class or two, uh, or uh, engaging students in research with faculty, or uh, asking uh, students to work across multiple disciplines and fields of knowledge in pursuit of questions or um, working or seeing faculties as increasingly uh, working uh, with students as mentors on solving problems, uh, project-based learning, flipped classrooms. You can go on and on and on of the things that are, that are the, what are called high-impact practices in higher education. Almost all of them emerged from Hampshire College in one form or another. Uh, and so to not have a place like Hampshire College in the in the educational ecosystem would, I think, just be a disaster for all of us. And so it's really important from that point of view. Uh, the other reason it's really important is that there are very few places uh, that a student who wants to construct their own pathway through an education oriented around a question that that makes them enthusiastic or a project that they think will change the world, where they can do that from the moment they walk onto campus. And that's what a Hampshire College invites a student to do, is to say, come here and start doing right away the work that you want to, that you would go to another college in order to do after you graduate. Uh, and we will make the space for you to do that. We will work with you to do that. We will help you do that well. That's an invaluable opportunity, and we would be poorer to not have it. And so just maybe give listeners, uh, if you can, sort of a, a, a sort of thumbnail sketch of, of what that means, you know, for people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, I mean, what is a Hampshire education 
consist of? How does it, how, you know, how does it differ in these important ways from, from sort of traditional uh, higher ed? Sure. And, and you could probably pitch in here too, since you uh, had that experience. Uh, the thing that is, that has been characteristic of Hampshire for the last 50 years, and, and you know, step back a second, Hampshire, we talk about ourselves as an experimenting college. We're not an experimental college, right? The ex- we're, it's, it's a verb. We are constantly trying to innovate and change. And part of our mission statement explicitly uh, is to transform higher education as we, as we transform students. But at the core of all of that experimentation uh, has been uh, is a process where by which a student defines the, the, the pathway of their own education. We don't have majors. We don't have prescribed pathways. We don't have general education requirements. It is the, it is the expectation that a student will determine what it is they want to study, what they need to know, what kind of question they're trying to grapple with. And then they will collaborate with their faculty members who are mentors and co-learners in constructing a, a contract for a curriculum that they will then pursue using both the courses at, at Hampshire College but also at the other five colleges. So Amherst College, Smith College, Mount Holyoke, and UMass Amherst, our students can take courses at all of those campuses uh, as part of their educational plan. And then that plan culminates, and this is something that is really incredibly unique, uh, in Division Three, which is the equivalent of a senior year at a typical college, where the student then takes all of that accumulated knowledge and work and produces a year-long, rigorous project uh, that pulls all that together and tries to answer the question they've been asking or produce a, the project that they've been working on uh, evaluated by a committee of faculty. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a, an undergraduate dissertation. Uh, and the ability to, to produce a project like that is just a remarkable demonstration of the kinds of skills that we want students to have when they leave the world or leave Hampshire, go off into the world and do things like work for, you know, the magazine here or the podcast, right? Um, and that's the graduation requirement we have. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've painted, you know, this picture, I mean, sort of at the outset of the the sort of vital role that Hampshire plays in the whole kind of higher ed ecosystem, and then talked a lot about the great attributes uh, of, the, of, the, of the program there. But let's talk a little bit about the challenge. I mean, it sounds like, uh, um, you know, what, what, what's not to love and why wouldn't it be thriving given its centrality, as you're saying, to, to what higher ed is about and, and the degree to which other institutions have over the last 50 years really uh, you know, borrowed from from a lot of the uh, the approach of Hampshire. Yet, it's without a doubt the case that the college is facing huge challenges uh, financially, and it, that it's not alone. I mean, this is something that we're hearing across the higher ed landscape. I mean, and it's you know particularly acute among smaller private uh, liberal arts schools. I think uh, many people may be familiar with whether they. Uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, buy into it or not. Uh, Harvard Business School professor Clay Christensen, probably the most alarming uh, prognosticator out there, has said as many as half of American uh, uh, liberal arts schools could disappear within a decade. I mean, he 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 may be wrong, but but it's certainly the direction. Uh, directionally, he's right. I mean, we're seeing schools close. So what? I mean, how how is Hampshire going to sort of avoid falling down that down that path? And and clearly, there's this sort of 
structural problem of higher ed costs just keep outstripping uh, however you measure them, if you measure them against, you know, family income or, or whatever. I mean, they are just going at, at a pace that seems not, not sustainable. I, and I've heard you talk about sort of a, a dual problem that, you know, there's kind of the, the, the cost structure of Hampshire and of schools like it probably that needs to be looked at. And in Hampshire's case also, you know, you've needed to kind of redouble efforts on the other side of the ledger to bring in money. Those are, those sound like two good good goals. But I mean, what does that really mean? And how do you take, uh, you know, this kind of structure of a small liberal arts campus and dramatically rethink the, the cost basis in a way to sort of give it, uh, you know, some sort of long-term security? Right. So one thing I think it's important to point out is that this is not a, a new problem. Um, it's particularly uh, striking to go back and read uh, The Making of a College, which is the, the founding document for Hampshire College. Hampshire was founded in an era in which higher education and higher education experts thought there was a crisis for small liberal arts colleges. This is the late 60s. There was a concern that prices were going up too too quickly, that any college that didn't have a big endowment would not be able to survive. Uh, And so there's actually two parts of Hampshire's founding mission. One is to be this experimenting innovator and coming up with different ways to to deliver a liberal arts education. But there's a second part that people don't pay as much attention to, which is we were were, uh, tasked to to show that you could have a high-quality, rigorous liberal arts education without having massive accumulations of wealth, without having to have a big endowment, or to put differently and put explicitly that you could deliver a residential liberal arts experience based on largely tuition revenue, right? And part of the challenge that Hampshire has had uh, internally uh, is um, a narrative that I think very quickly emerged, uh, and I think part of it's because you, you, if you live in a neighborhood with with people who have lots of resources, you tend to compare yourself to them, right? If you live in a house full of, in a neighborhood full of millionaires and you are only wealthy, right? You maybe feel like you don't have as much. So this idea that 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 Hampshire is an under-resourced institution uh, mm-hmm. has been a kind of a dominant refrain for a couple of decades, and so uh, I think that's I think that's a mistake, right? And I think it's a mistake that a lot of small colleges might make. You cannot look at yourself as under-resourced. You have to look at the resources that you have, and look relentlessly at the core of your mission and match the two. Mm-hmm. Right, and so what we've been trying to do at Hampshire, and I think successfully, uh, is to say we have a very clear mission. We know exactly what matters and what we do at Hampshire. We need to focus on only doing the things that that match that mission and make that student experience as best as it can possibly be as they build their own uh, course of study. And anything that isn't directly related to that is something that we don't necessarily need to be doing. And so uh, as we've been really um, thoughtful about that, uh, we've managed to get ourselves to the point where our operating expenses uh, for the current year are actually less than our uh, revenue would be if we had admitted a full class. Right. So right. had we admitted a full class sure. of students this You'd fall, we'd be, we'd be balanced. Actually, we'd right. be producing positive revenue. And so I think the concern that the concern that that led to the I think kind of self-induced crisis of the spring was mm-hmm. a, a thought. Well, costs keep going up. Costs keep going up. We can't seem to control costs. There's this narrative nationally that people can't control costs. 
uh, and we can't seem to raise enough money to, to bridge the gap. If things keep going like this, we can't survive. Let's try to do a responsible thing and, and you know, teach out our students and do a merger now before it becomes mm. acute. But it turns out that it's not true that you can't control costs, right? That if you, uh, particularly at a place like Hampshire that is full of creative people who are committed to the institution, when you invite the faculty and you invite the staff and you invite your alumni community and you invite your parents of your, of your students and you invite the students to s- try to grapple with this problem, they can do it, right? But, but does that mean, um, you know, having to rethink pretty significantly, you know, your staffing or faculty? Or Tell me a little bit about how that happens or how you've been able to do that and... and uh, Although you said that this sort of challenge is one that was recognized even 55 years ago when the college was being planned, uh, I mean, you're now at a point where you are uh, having to really rethink that. And is there a different sort of structure or way of thinking about faculty at these small schools? And you know that that again can can uh, help help uh, ensure their sustainability. Yeah, I think there is. And, I, you know, there's there's a lot of different components to the operating budget of, of a small college. You're asking specifically about faculty. Uh, you know, just, I'll just give you a couple of numbers here. Uh, between 2010 and 2013, uh, the faculty-to-student or the student-to-faculty ratio at Hampshire College was about 15 to 1, so about 15 students for each faculty member. Uh, and at that point, Hampshire was producing uh, either positive revenue and balanced budgets. Right. Last year, it was closer to eight students for each faculty member. So part of what happened over that intervening period is we saw a slight but continuing declines in the number of students who came to Hampshire uh, who were paying slightly less per student, so declining revenues in both of those elements. And at the same time, we were hiring more people. Right? So there was this disconnect between, right. ah, well, it would be really great if we had a person who did you know, this thing or sure. a person who did that thing. And so let's do that. Yeah, it would be great if we had those things. Right. Uh, and that conversation, I think, was not happening in concert with the, but how many students do we have and how do we best serve them given the resources we have? Right. We're now back to a point where those two are roughly aligned. So even with um, a smaller faculty this year, a substantially smaller faculty this year than we had last year, the year before. Uh, we also have fewer students. Mm-hmm. We're still at a roughly 10 students to one faculty. And over the course of the next four years, as we grow back our enrollment and slowly expand, but not not dramatically, our, our number of faculty, we will end up back where we were when we were a, a financially thriving institution, which is a roughly... 15 students per every faculty member. Now, there's two things that, that are important about that have to be rethought about that. One is, given the intensive kind of work that our faculty do with our students, we've been having to think about the structures of things like advising uh, and the way you organize projects uh, within our curriculum uh, to make that work more manageable, to make sure also that students all get the attention that they deserve. Um, we're confident that, that's, that we can do that. That's sort of, you know curricular design internal work, but that I think we're positive that we can do. But a second thing that drives that kind of growth uh, in faculty at a lot of places is this idea that what matters in a liberal arts education uh, is having uh, 
a bunch of faculty representing every one of the traditional disciplines that make up a research university. Mm-hmm. That a liberal arts education is sort of a watered down version of the research university curriculum, uh, which you can never really do. Uh, and instead, we're really focusing intently on this idea that faculty members bring expertise in a discipline, but their primary expertise in relation to students is as a mentor, as a, as a co-learner, as a resource. And so I'm, a, I'm trained as a political philosopher. Uh, but I don't, you know, when students come to me uh, to work with me on their projects, I should be able to work with them on any range of things they're interested in. Uh, and if one of the things they're interested in is political philosophy, we can do some of that. But I don't. But we don't need to make sure we have a political philosopher for every student who might have one. Hmm. Uh, we have the particular advantage in Hampshire that as students, th- their questions develop and they realize, ah, to answer this really interesting question um, about water quality and and inequality in developing countries, I maybe really need to know some sophisticated um, development macroeconomics, right? Well. You can go to UMass Amherst or Amherst College and, and get that particular course and that particular expertise. What you need from our faculty uh, is help in knitting together all of those resources in ways that uh, lead you to do a rigorous project. You know, you spoke at the outset about Hampshire's sort of singular role in higher ed, and um, uh, the Washington Post did a big look uh, a couple months ago uh, at Hampshire, also sort of framing it. Uh, in this broad way, uh, you're, you're rolling your eyes for, for people who, who are, are listening. The title is, Are Liberal Arts Colleges Doomed? And, and they used Hampshire, they say, as the cautionary tale of Hampshire and the broken business model of American yeah. higher ed. So uh, it sounds like you didn't buy into everything that they, that they got at. But, but it does still seem like uh, there's something to this idea of small colleges that are very tuition dependent and the difficulty in getting uh, you know, except for, as this article said, you know, these very sort of elite schools that getting as many full-paying uh, um, students. And so the numbers begin to not work as well. And again, it sounds like, though, that, that I, I mean, are you suggesting that the kind of rethinking that Hampshire's doing is maybe, again, back to its kind of vanguard role? Is that something that you think, uh, you know, is, is not a challenge that's going to be unique to Hampshire, but we're going to see other schools having to uh, take take that on and rethink things. Well, we, we already do see that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I rolled my eyes a little bit, not because of the, I thought the article was really good. If uh-huh. you read it, it would make you want to go to Hampshire College. I just, the headline framed it as, you know, the downfall of Hampshire College. And then you read this article, you're like, well, that sounds like a really great place. Right. Um, so okay. that was my eye roll. Was gotcha. That, yeah, uh, so, look, there's there this, the economics of a small tuition-dependent college have always been fraught. They are more fraught now. Mm-hmm. The idea that somehow that that bringing in full pay students is going to solve any of these problems is 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 a myth that nobody has believed in that realm of higher education for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Right? There's just not you know there, there's a small population of of student of of schools that 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 can traffic in that. The vast majority of schools are discounting everybody who comes through the door. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you, as a small college, identify the core elements of your mission that will attract the kind of students who will most benefit from what you offer that you can then support without having to draw on you know, uh, 
ex- extra sources of unpredictable in- income and wealth. And so at Hampshire, we've got a really distinct model, a really distinct role, uh, a really distinct student experience, and we can staff that uh, if 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 we are really focused on providing that kind of mentored student-directed education in a way that is manageable for a tuition-dependent institution, right? So if we can afford 70 faculty members and we say, your job at Hampshire as a faculty member is to be an expert co-learner, and when we go off and hire somebody, we're not looking for uh, you know a person with a particular expertise in a particular discipline, but the desire to, to teach in that way, uh, that gives us a kind of flexibility that other colleges don't have. But if you're you know, another small college somewhere, you're going to need to make some choices about the things that you're going to do well mm-hmm. and therefore the things that you're not going to do. That what drives small colleges into distress is this inability to stop trying to do everything, mm-hmm. right? right? If you try to do that, you're just going to do a bad version of everything at a cost you can't sustain. And also it seems going back to your earlier point about, uh, you know, kind of, trying to keep up with the Joneses, uh, you know, this idea of kind of knowing what it is that you're offering and what people are drawn by and not um, feeling that you need to compete on every level. And I guess the question I have is, you know, again, we've sort of read and heard ad nauseum over the last 10 or 20 years about the the kind of race for uh, amenities at schools, fancy dorms, you know, uh, sushi in the dining hall, uh, you know, unbelievable uh, you know, facilities of, of that kind. You know, Hampshire, uh, you know, doesn't have those. And and are you saying, you know, one key is to not sort of be, kind of get caught up in that race? And and, and if that is your view, you're confident that that, yeah. that uh, there really is a, a, a lane for Hampshire and, and for, I guess, other schools as well uh, that exist without getting caught up in that amenities race. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's there's two versions of this versions of this amenities race. There's the amenity races that among the wealthy institutions who are competing with one another. That's one category. Then there's the decision of of the rest of these colleges, the ones that we're talking about, the small colleges, tuition dependent across the country. One way to try to make yourself stand out is to build some really nice facilities. But then understand that if that's what you're trying to do, then you're trying to attract students on the basis of the nice facilities you're doing, and, you're, and maybe you're not attracting them based on the distinctiveness in your curriculum. Other, other colleges want to invest in creating something that's really distinct about their academic experience, but that probably means investing in that in, in, some, in some ways that, that require not investing in other areas, like maybe, you know, a new facility or maybe letting go of certain kinds of um, programs, right? Those decisions you have to make. So, you know, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be president of college that was trying to attract students based on you know building resort amenities. Um, I prefer to be president of a college that tries to attract students based on offering a really distinct and rigorous curriculum. Uh, but you know, that's those are all different versions of distinctiveness. And mm-hmm. so I think it, at Hampshire, you're right. Yeah, I don't think we need you know a lazy river. Right? We have a climbing wall because you know we were early right. early adoptees of of, of climbing and um, the outdoors, and the outdoors program. program. We yeah, don't have yeah. athletics. We have, we don't have an athletics part. We have an outdoors program. Well, there was a pretty good frisbee you know, team back in the day. We still have a really good ultimate frisbee okay. team, right? But we don't. We're not an NCAA NCAA uh-huh. athletics you know organization. And you know, I I think I am completely confident that there are. More than five or six hundred students every year 
who desperately want to do the kind of education that Hampshire offers and are even more interested in it when we are able to say to them, the, the, the concerns you have about the world that you want to start grappling with after you graduate from college, you can come here and start doing them right away. I think we can expand that interest. And that's back to my point about lessons for other small colleges. Make those choices. Know who you are, and you're likely to be able to find a market. You don't have to have, you don't have to find a lot of people. You just got to find the, the four or 500 every year who want what you offer. Mm-hmm. And what's been, just talk a little bit about the few months you've been there. What's been uh, sort of most daunting? What, what have you been sort of, I don't know, pleasantly surprised by? Are there things that uh, you arrived and, and you thought, oh, oh my, uh, this, this really is a, 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 tall, a tall order here and, and, it, and it could be more difficult than you thought? Um, Though the pleasantest of the surprises is the eagerness and willingness of our extended community to engage in the creative problem solving of building a Hampshire college that is sustainable uh, and the willingness of all of those constituencies to take seriously the fact that we have real challenges that mean we have to make real choices that may have cost for people and nevertheless engage in that conversation and to do so with enthusiasm and goodwill. Uh, and we, you know, we spent two months uh, from between uh, September through early November uh, meeting weekly. Uh, or, yeah, meeting weekly, faculty, staff, students, uh, alums were calling in, parents were coming to these meetings, trying to develop this plan for the future. And throughout all of it, people never lost energy. They never lost their excitement for what makes Hampshire unique and their part in it. Uh, so that's been a really wonderful surprise. Uh, mm-hmm. I was worried about the ability of people coming out of last spring to kind of put that aside and work for a positive future. So that's been good. Uh, I've also been really surprised – well, not surprised, but uh, um, uh, reassured uh, by the willingness of our extended community to provide financial support. Right. So – like I mentioned earlier, that if we'd taken a class, we'd have a balanced budget. Well, we didn't take a class. Right. So we have a big gap <laughs> exactly. over the next four years. Right. And so like we're in 700 the, and some students now versus, versus maybe 1,100, 1,200 exactly. back, exactly. back in the day. And so... Uh, and, and you so want to get to that day we again? Will, we will get ultimately. there over the next, you know, by, by 2023, 2024, mm-hmm. somewhere in that area, we should be around 11 right. to 1,200 students. In the meantime, we need, to, we need to raise funds, operating funds to make right. up that gap. And you've got a big capital campaign going. $60 million which, capital uh, campaign going. Ken, Ken Burns, the filmmaker and, and Hampshire alum, is, is uh, helping to lead that. One of the chairs of that. And so, and we've raised. And how's that going? We have, to date, we have raised $11.2 million, almost all of it for operating expenses. Uh, so people have been very willing to prov- to give money directly to 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 that gap. Uh, so that's like that's a that's a million a month since January. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're right on pace. Uh, it, we 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 look at the we look at the uh, the the donor capacity uh, of our alums, people who gave a lot more last spring when they realized that they hadn't maybe been giving as much as they could, and then they saw that Hampshire might be in trouble. A lot of people gave a lot more money. So Ken Burns, uh, the argument he made is. Pick a number that hurts, and then multiply it by four, right? And Ouch! And well, and that's what Ken did, right? Yep. He's, he's, he'll tell you that story over and over again. Right, and a right. lot of people, maybe they didn't multiply by four, but they definitely increased their giving. Mm-hmm. If everybody who increased their giving last spring did that for the next five years, that's more than half of our sixty million dollar campaign right there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's been really that that, that level of enthusiasm uh, and generosity uh, has been really, really, really reassuring. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe one last question, just sort of talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the composition of, of the, the, the student population. And this sort of speaks more broadly, I think, to a lot of small liberal arts colleges. And I guess I'm thinking of sort of two things in particular. One is, uh, you know, this was certainly true in my time there. And I, from, as I gather, is still true today. And that's that, I mean, Hampshire is a real hotbed of kind of left-leaning political activism. And, um, and, and sort of, is that, does that present a problem at all? You know, people talk about campuses today being sort of cloisters of, of that kind of, you know, groupthink thought and, and not being always, uh, despite the kind of idea that there are places to explore and, you know, kind of the world of ideas, that they're not always that open to, to kind of a range of ideas. And, and I guess the second thing, which is maybe not exactly related, but has to do with the composition is, you know, how do you also, in the face of these financial challenges, try to, you know, serve a broader cross-section of students, uh, you know, from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, economically, racially, and so forth, and not be sort of this sort of elite, uh, you know, sort of oasis of, of, of privilege. So let me give you, let me answer the second question first, because okay. it's a really important one. Uh, Hampshire College has been and continues to be committed to, to providing an opportunity to a range of students from both, both racially, ethnically, but also socioeconomically. So right now, our current student population, 32% of our students are Pell eligible, which means that they're from moderate or low-income backgrounds. That is a very high number for a private selective institution. It is, you look at the five colleges in the Pioneer Valley, by far the highest percentage of moderate and low-income students. And that includes the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Right. right? Um, Now, we and others should do better. More than half of the students in America are eligible for Pell Grants. Right. right? So, but it matters that Mm -hmm. we have that population as we have built our model for financial sustainability and designed our curriculum, one of our primary goals is to make sure that we don't lose our ability to support those students. So we are assuming, for example, that our net revenue per student as we go forward will be flat or, or, or will be declining even as, we, as, our, as our enrollment comes back up. Mm. And that, become, that was one of the constraints around which we built, Right. Rather than saying, "Well, we can't. We, we just need more people to pay more money," and but so we're that not. That was a trade off. Right? It's didn't a trade off. We got it. We, right. This is a fundamental commitment for us. Right. It's harder for us sure. because most of our, our revenue comes from tuition. It would be easier for for colleges that have a lot more wealth than we do to make those choices, and maybe they should. You could have them on and ask their those presidents about why they don't. Uh, but we are not going to let go of that. Uh, back to the yeah. you know the question about the. Right. Uh, as a political hot philosopher. Be- Hotbeds yeah. of, of liberalism. Right. Um, you know, I think it's an interesting – this is a question that comes up a lot sure. uh, and not just about Hampshire College because I think – you know, I, when I talk to other college presidents, particularly college presidents of uh, private liberal arts colleges, this comes up a lot. Right. right. So in part because current contemporary students tend to be already so much more uh, left-leaning than – you know, students a generation or two ago were so that people looking in from the outside look at look at you know a collection of eighteen to twenty two year olds from you know competitive high schools in urban areas, which is primarily what these colleges look like, and mm-hmm. say, oh my gosh, they've put all the all the radicals together. Well, no, those are representative of you know 
18 to 22 year olds, right? And increasingly of, of their parents as, as college. At those schools, I mean, right. probably less so at, you know, Texas A&M or huge state schools across the country. Right? Although even all, even at the large state schools, I mean, you know, look at the trend in, in uh, voter identification beyond college. Where, right. Right. what is the biggest determinant in your likelihood of being liberal or democratic affiliated? It's having a college education. Right, right. Okay, right. so but even just take that as a so, given, like, is there anything that schools ought to be doing to just, you know, yeah. to, to, I don't know, just create more... Uh, I don't know, kind of a more free-flowing sort of exchange of ideas. And, and I mean, is, is, the, is it a problem? And do you, do you agree that this has been a problem on some campuses? Right. And, and I would guess at, at Hampshire as well with, with the most sort of free-thinking, left-leaning people at times being a little closed right. in, in sort of in, in, in their dialogue and debates. Yeah, I agree that it's been a problem uh, at Hampshire in particular. Uh, I think... There has been in the past uh, tendencies to uh, engage in this kind of you know groupthink right. monoculture. Uh, one of the things that I've seen since I've been in Hampshire over the last several several months is some genuine concern from students and intentional actions to push back on that. And so you know, talking to students too, who are students who identify themselves as sort of far left and liberal who want to be activists for social justice who also want to push back on this idea of, you know, this kind of cancel culture, who want to want to be at a place where students feel free to express themselves and lots of range of opinions. The students themselves want to see that. All right. Well, listen, uh, Ed Wienbach, president of Hampshire College, I want to thank you so much for coming in and talking with us on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me and and thanks for attending Hampshire College and representing us so well out here in the world. Well, it's been great. And I know you're, you've got the 50th anniversary coming up uh, next year. There was a time when uh, I guess people thought that might be more of a, of a wake uh, or, a, you know, or a sort of memorial uh, observance. And now I, I guess you're probably uh, planning ahead for it uh, as much more of a celebration and uh, a look toward the future. The launch of the next 50 years of, of exciting innovation. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.